Good morning. Team TCF. I want to make sure this does something before we... That's what it did last week. It took a minute to... All right. Well, welcome to Marriage Part 2. Um, son of marriage. <laughs> I don't know. I thought it'd be fun to start with the 10 best marriage quotes that I've ever read. Um, I'm continually on the hunt for good quotes on marriage. So the first one is from Agatha Christie. She said, an archaeologist is the best husband any woman could have. The older she gets, the more interested he is in her. <laughs> Apparently, he, she, he, her husband was an archaeologist. Socrates said this, my advice to you is to get married. If you find a good wife, you'll be happy. If not, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> the difficulty with marriage is we fall in love with a personality but must live with a character. That's Peter DeVries. Uh, this, is a, this is a nice one. A happy marriage is a long conversation that always seems too short. Who said, was that you, Amy? That was James. <laughs> okay, see if you know who said this. I married the first man I ever kissed. When I tell this to my children, they just about throw up. You know who that is? Barbara Bush. Now, this is another nice one. Uh, see if you know who said this. There is no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. Martin Luther. Yeah. <laughs> this next one, I don't know what to think of. I think that gay marriage should be between a man and a woman. <laughs> That's Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> my gosh. This one, the author is unknown. They say marriage is like strong horseradish. It makes you smile and cry at the same time. <laughs> uh, this is a nice one. Marriage is the most natural state of man and the state in which you will find solid happiness. Uh, Benjamin Franklin. I, have, I, I love being married. It's so great to find one special person you want to annoy for the rest of your life. <laughs> That's Rita Rudner. I guess she's a comedian. And then this is a nice one, kind of mixing comedy and, and uh, just nice, nice sentiment. To keep your marriage brimming with love in the loving cup. Whenever you're wrong, admit it. Whenever you're right, shut up. That's Ogden Nash. So, all right. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for just the freedom to laugh and be a family of faith. We just want to um, slow our thoughts down and relish 
these moments of worshiping you, of looking at our world, looking at this institution of marriage and seeing how it was birthed in your very heart and um, connecting uh, dots, as it were, with the Word of God. I pray that it wouldn't just be marriage that we are discussing this morning, but it would be the character of Jesus Christ and how that is so entwined with highly happy marriage. I pray that you would bless those who have lost their spouse. I pray that you would bless those who are single. Um, Lord, those who have gone through a divorce, been remarried, whatever state we find ourselves in, Lord, we want to give you all the glory and all the praise. We want to have that Christus Victor mentality. We want to relish um, this wonderful institution, but also whatever state we find ourselves. So we bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to review a couple of slides from last time for those of you who weren't here. And it's good just to review. We saw last week that singlehood and marriage are held in honor in the scriptures. Paul said, I wish that all men were as I am, meaning single and He wanted to secure our undistracted undistracted devotion to the Lord. So singlehood is surely honored in the scriptures. We honor our singles um, in our body and your undistracted devotion to the Lord. Even as we lift up the scripture, let marriage be held in honor among all. I like that little two-word phrase, let it be held in honor. I, I take that to mean let it be esteemed Let it be valued, let it be held as a treasure, and lifted up. Last week, we also saw that there's some exciting uh, new um, research on the marriage and divorce rate in our country, and that much of what we have believed in the past is false, Uh, specifically this idea that 40 to 50% of us Uh, we'll get divorced if we get married. Um, That is no longer considered accurate, according to this new research. The divorce rate for first marriages is actually 20 to 25% and has never been close to 50%. 72% of married Americans are still in their first marriages, so 7 out of 10, more than 7 out of 10. The actual divorce rate for society as a whole taking into account 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th marriages um, is 31%. So you can round that down to about 30%. So in your mind, I want you to replace, to take that 50% number and throw it out and replace that with 20 to 25% and 30% for all marriages. The vast majority of marriages are happy marriages Across seven studies, a conservative median was 80% of couples report being happy or very happy in their marriages. So it's not true that most marriages are just so-so, just getting along. Number three, the divorce rate in the church is not the same as in the world at large. Weekly church attendance is associated with the divorce rate dropping 
an additional 25 to 50%. Several studies different, come up with different numbers, um, but that's good news as well. And then number four, marriage. I stress that marriage is a divine institution, um, that it's a grace gift from God, that it pervades the scriptures, that it, that it permeates the gospel narrative. And coming away from that study had a sense that, um, that marriage as an institution was birthed in the heart of God. And because of that, we don't need to fear its demise. And I listed some things that marriage has endured. It's endured centuries of polygamy, uh, biblical marriage I'm talking about, centuries of polygamy, of the free love movement, the feminist movement, pornography, cohabitation, and now the new kid on the block, same-sex marriage, and in the future, uh, multiple person marriage called polyamory. So just came away, I just want to share with you that I came away with a sense that marriage is durable. It's, it's going to persevere. We don't need to fear it. Gallup poll did a, a poll last year uh, in June and found that 95% of our population has been married, is currently married, or wants to be married. Only 5% of our population has never been married and doesn't want to be married. So I think this institution that we're talking about is very close to the heart of God, and we can be uh, confident and secure that it will endure. Okay. Well, this morning's topic is the surprising secrets of highly happy marriages. Have you ever wished you could know for sure the secrets of a highly happy and successful marriage? Anybody ever want to know that? Uh, Jody does. Good, Jody, thank you. Um, Shanti Feldhahn is a Harvard-trained researcher, and she's turned to it, her attention to this. Um, in her book, The Surprising Secrets of Highly Happy Marriages. As you can see, I drew the title for this message from her book. So what is a highly happy couple anyway? Well, let me explain that to you before we go on. She's uh, polled, I don't know, thousands of couples, I suppose, asking husbands and wives separately, are you personally generally happy in your marriage these days and enjoying being married? And she gave respondents five choices, five answers. The first one is yes, with an exclamation mark. The second one is yes, most of the time. The third one is it depends. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. The fourth one is not really. And the fifth one is no, exclamation mark, I am really unhappy. So what we're talking about today are the couples where individually both answered number one, yes, with an exclamation mark. Any, any other answer, we're not talking about that. We're not even talking about the couples who say, yes, I'm happy most of the time. We're talking about those who said yes unequivocally with an exclamation mark. And she's asking, what are the small things that make a big difference in marriage? Not what couples believe they do, 
but what do they actually do? She says early on in her book that if you ask a highly happy couple what it is that makes them so happy, they really kind of fumble around and can't really put their finger on much. You know, they might have a, a deep conviction that we, we never go to bed angry, for example. Uh, that's really important. And then she'll ask, well, do you ever go to bed angry? Well, yeah, I guess we do sometimes. You know, so she's trying to tease out behaviorally what is it that couples, highly happy couples, actually do? Not what do they say they do or what do they think they do? So that's who we're talking about. Now I want to spend a little time on this slide. Why is it important to look at research? Um, sometimes our faith view is that the Bible is enough. It should be enough. Isn't isn't the Bible enough? Why do we even need to study research at all? And in fact, Isaiah 40, verse 8, uh, is a beautiful passage that we would all wholeheartedly believe and, and, and confirm as a conviction of ours. And that is, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Isn't that true? We really believe the Bible is the truth. But there's a long, also a long tradition in Christianity that says all truth is God's truth. Even truth outside the Bible, even truth you can observe or patterns of human behavior, um, these things, if they're true, they also belong to God. And I like that kind of thinking. Uh, Karl Barth said, have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Um, Last time I quoted Dr. Scott Stanley at Denver University, a fine spirit-filled Christian who um, has studied marriage for over three decades. And he said, science is the currency of our culture. So when we can show that research and the scriptures agree, we become more powerful missionaries to our culture. And he's really, he's really his life has demonstrated that. He's been on TV 2020. Oprah, you know, all those kinds of shows, uh, talking about research and also throwing in Bible references and, and references to Christianity. And then you have this quote by Sir Francis Bacon, let no man out of conceit or laziness think or believe that anyone can search too far or be too well informed in the book of God's words or the book of God's works, religion or science. Instead, let everyone endlessly improve their understanding of both. And then the Bible, in a way, even itself, says that we should take stock of the world around us. Ephesians 5.15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. This is the King James Version. And I'd like to talk about Mike Farrell for a minute. Mike is out watching the door right now, but I remember talking with Mike about this verse and him saying he had developed a whole teaching, I think, about the word or the phrase walking circumspectly. What does that mean? He said it means that you are, it's like you are drawing a circle around yourself and you are aware of everything 
um, around you and how your behavior might affect everything that's going on around you. So you're very aware, you're very um, aware of your environment, aware of your culture, and so on. And you know what? The Apostle Paul, there's a couple great examples from the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul demonstrated this. Let me take you there. The first one is when Paul was in Athens. He was waiting for his companions to show up, and it says in chapter 17, verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he's walking around Athens, and he's seeing all these altars and all these idols, and he's upset about it. And so he starts, he goes into the synagogues, and he starts to teach, and Eventually, some Stoics and Epicureans hear him, philosophers of that day, and they invite him to the Areopolis, which was kind of a central meeting place. And Paul stands up in verse 22 in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. So there's that circumspectness. He's, he's looked around him and he's observed uh, the situation. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What you therefore worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. I don't know how effective Paul was that day, but you can see what he was doing, can't you? That he had taken that circumspect look around and he was trying to use the culture and the environment he was in for the advancement of the gospel. Another example is in chapter 23, when Paul is on trial before the Sanhedrin. And let me just read a few verses of this to you. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And do you sit and try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So here's a very awkward moment. Um, Paul has rebuked, uh, been struck, he's rebuked the high priest, not realizing it was the high priest, and then he's told it's the high priest, and he backs down. Very awkward moment. So what does he do? He drops, he decides to drop what one friend of mine called a Jesus bomb. He just, he just, he just wants to just blow the place up. And so he says... Perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. There arose a great uproar, and he, Paul had to be whisked away uh, because they went so nuts about the resurrection from the dead. And so here's another situation where Paul is using 
what's around him to uh, try to, I don't know if he was trying to remove himself or advance the gospel or get out of an awkward situation, but at any rate, he had his reasons. So we too, I think, need to try our best to walk circumspectly and make the most of the times. All right, let's look at secret number one. I've, I've, uh, in the book, Shanti Feldhan has 12, and of course that's too many to try to cover even on a good day. So um, I just pick seven. So the first one is to know that little things are big. Little is big. A few little specific actions communicate to our spouse that we care deeply about them, which has enormous power in our marital happiness. She comes up with a list of fantastic five for him and fantastic five for her. And he says that these are pretty much across gender. So they, they, they're pretty true for all men and all women. There might be some exceptions, but for the most part, uh, these are true. So for him, let's just take two from each. For him, thank you equals I love you. Now, this is the only slide I'm going to talk about my marriage a little bit. Um, so I won't bombard you with my marriage. But this, this really rings true for me. Laura can say, I love you, I love you, I love you. And it really doesn't mean much to me. But if she says, you know, a genuine thank you for working so hard. A, a, a couple of years ago, the Lord actually spoke to her and said, I want you to start thanking Jim for the things that um, are expected of him, like working hard or, uh, you know, just the things that he's supposed to do. And she said, you know, she, that surprised her because she grew up in a family where the family ethic was, you don't get thanked for doing what's expected of you. You know, that's just expected of you. You get thanked for the extra things. And so she talked back to the Lord a little bit, and, and of course he said, just do it. And so she started thanking me for working so hard. And at first it was odd. It was like, well, that's strange, you know. But over time, I realized how much it was meaning to me that she did that. It was more impactful than her telling me she loved me. And so, gals, if you're in a marriage, uh, just know that that, you can say I love you all you want, but if you really want to impact him, tell him thank you in a genuine way for something that he's doing. Secondly, for him, she makes it clear to him that he makes her happy. Uh, according to Shanti's research, you know, if a woman genuinely let her husband know that, that, that he makes her happy. That was just huge to uh, men as well. Because men want to be affirmed that they're doing a good job or they've done a good job. Okay, well what about her? For her, one of the big ones of the five were taking her hand has the emotional impact of saying things are good. Things are good. So 
Guys, anytime you take your wife's hand in the car or at church or you put your arm around her in public, that really registers good emotionally. So I'll give you a moment to take her hand right now. Okay. And then this one surprised me, but as I, again, I reflected on my marriage, I thought, how true. Um, pulling himself out of a bad mood is huge. You know, we guys like to just be in a bad mood sometimes. Um, pulls, him out, pulls himself out of a funk when he's morose, grumpy, or upset about something instead of withdrawing. This doesn't mean he doesn't get angry or need space, but it means he tries to pull himself out of it. This deeply pleases 72% of all women. Well, when I was first married and Laura would, you know, make me angry, um, I wouldn't talk to her for several days. Um, and she would, she would try different things. She would say, Jim, you're, you're punishing me. Uh, with your silence. And she would say, Jim, when you're done pouting, uh, I'm ready to talk. And of course, that just, that just went all through me. Um, but, you know, I, I came to realize that it was really unproductive and really an unfair and even sort of cowardly way to fight, to go silent for me, I'll just say for me, um, that I needed to learn to shorten the amount of time that I allowed myself the luxury of, of being in that funk. And, and she really appreciated it. Of course, being from New York, it was hard to, uh, you know, to um, handle her, let's say, um, with silence. Gregory Bateson is an English sociologist, linguist, and cyberneticist who said, precise information is a difference which makes a difference. You know, we can, we can know a lot of things about marriage, but what we want to know is what are those things that make a difference? And again, that's what this research is trying to get after. Okay, secret number two is to believe the best. Do you recognize that in the scriptures anywhere? 1 Corinthians 13, right? Highly happy couples choose to believe that their spouse deeply cares about them, even when they're hurt, fighting, angry, and confused. When they don't feel it, they look for another explanation to the seeming uncaring behavior of their spouse. I've got here, note the 95-5-0 principle. She was doing a conference of uh, 50 couples, most of whom were first responder couples. One of, the, one of the members of the couple was a first responder. So these were high-stress marriages, high-intensity high marriages. And so she separated the guys from the girls, and she asked them... Um, how, uh, let's see, what did she ask them? She asked them, do you um, care deeply? How many of you care deeply for your spouse? And 95 hands 
95% of the hands went up, 95 out of 100. She said, how many of you care deeply sometimes about your spouse? And five hands went up. How many of you don't care about your spouse at all? Zero hands went up. Okay, so 100 out of 100 care at least sometimes, and 95 out of 100 care deeply virtually all the time. And uh, then she asked this interesting question, though. She said, how many of you are convinced that your spouse deeply cares about you? And guess what? Only half the hands in the room went up. So here's half of us not sure that our spouse deeply cares for us when the truth is virtually 100% do deeply care about us. So that's an interesting thing. When highly happy spouses are legitimately hurt, they refuse to believe that their mate intended to hurt them, and they look for the most generous explanation instead. This is her finding regarding part of this difficulty, is that couples, highly happy couples, when, an when one of the spouses gets hurt or offended, they actively are looking for a, a reason other than they intended to hurt me or other than they don't care about me. Struggling couples don't do that. They hang on to that sense of my spouse doesn't care about me or my spouse intended to hurt me. A good example of this was um, a, colleague, a counseling colleague of mine had a client, a couple, where they were in his, her office and the, the woman of the couple was just crying, 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 and here was her story. She said, um, my husband was, was very drunk, and we were in the garage, and he looked at me and he said, I should have married my high school sweetheart. And she was just brokenhearted over this. But the therapist wisely pointed out to her that she had a decision to make. The decision to make was, when he's drunk, is he telling you what he really feels? Or when he's sober, is he really being who he really is? Um, you, you have to decide, is it your sober husband who's the real, that's the real man, or is it this one who, with all his inhibitions down, made such a statement. And that's really what this is getting at, is that we need to choose, highly happy couples choose to believe the best. They don't choose to believe what's most destructive or what's um, most hurtful and will keep them stuck. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. One wife put it this way, the most important factor for a happy marriage is believing you married a well-intentioned person. Another wife said, by expecting the best, you bring out the best. I bet you could uh, tell me your stories as well. One young man in a troubled marriage that I've worked with for some time, he uses the phrase, I choose to believe. When, his, when he's presented with something in his wife, 
that he has trouble believing her motives are good, he, sa he literally says, I, I choose to believe that she's doing it for this reason or that reason. All right, let's look at secret number three. And this is an important one. We'll linger here for a while. And this is a one that goes way beyond marriage. Okay, it's a good, it's just something good to know. And that is that highly happy couples and highly happy individuals boss their feelings around. Letting our feelings run the show doesn't turn out so well. We must learn to lead our feelings rather than be led by them. Imagine what you would do today if you just let yourself be run entirely by your feelings. I wonder what you would do. I think what I would do is go out for Mexican food about three times. <laughs> and then on the way home, I'd stop at Quick Trip and get one of those fritters, apple fritters. And then maybe late tonight, I might run out and get something, you know. Uh, would I exercise? Mm -mm. <laughs> How much TV would I watch, you know? I mean, if you were to go by your feelings, you can see the trouble that you would get in. And so this little diagram, thoughts, feelings, actions, I don't, I don't think you can see the arrows, but there are little arrows leading from thoughts to feelings and from feelings to actions. The reality is, is that our thoughts drive our feelings and our feelings result in actions. Um, sometimes actions can also change feelings. But the, the, the big idea here is that if you want to change your feelings, you have to change your thoughts. That the best way to do it is change your thoughts. And you know what? The scriptures say this. Uh, the best uh, practice clinical psychology says this. Uh, ancient philosophers say this. And people who have really suffered say this, like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Viktor Frankl, um, others, that, that we, have to, uh, we have to choose our thoughts, choose our responses to things. So let's take a look at some of the scriptures here. As a man thinketh, so is he taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Epictetus was a philosopher's slave, uh, and he said, we suffer more from our response to events than we do from the events themselves. Interestingly, if you read Epictetus, you know what you find there? You find the serenity prayer. Not, not in its current form, but basically it's there. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of James Bond Stockdale, but he was a general, excuse me, a um, vice admiral in the Navy during the Vietnam Wars, he was a fighter pilot, and he was shot down uh, over Vietnam and was a, a prisoner of war for eight years. Four of those were in solitary confinement. 
Uh, he was the highest ranking naval officer held during the Vietnam War. He was tortured 15 times and put in leg irons for two years. And he credits the philosophy of Epictetus with getting him through those years of torture, of choosing what his response would be, deciding he was not a victim even in that setting, and uh, finding joy, finding his happiness through his thought life and in his internal self. Listen to what he says. After ejection, this is when he shot down, I had about 30 seconds to make my last statement in freedom before I landed in the main street of a little village right ahead. And so help me, I whispered to myself, five years down there at least, I'm leaving the world of technology and entering the world of Epictetus. He said, um, he realized that a Stoic always kept separate files in his mind for A, those things that are up to him, and B, those things that are not up to him. Another way of saying it is A, those things that are within my power, and B, those things that are beyond my power. Still another way of saying it is A, those things that are within the grasp of my will, and B, those things that are beyond it. All in category B are external, beyond my control, ultimately dooming me to fear and anxiety if I covet them. All in category A are up to me, within my power, within my will, and properly subjects for my total concern and involvement. So this man credits this idea that I must control my thoughts and not be led by my feelings with his uh, sanity and survival. Viktor Frankl, many of you know, was a uh, Jewish uh, psychiatrist who spent time at Auschwitz and Dachau. Uh, and uh, he spent three years there. He lost his mother, his father, his brother. Uh, the only family member who survived other than he himself was his sister. And he said this, man's last and greatest freedom is response ability, the ability to respond. And so when this comes to marriage and, and really all our relationships, um, we have freedom, don't we? We have, we have choices to make about how we will respond and boss our feelings around. One quote that Frankel is um, credited with is one of those quotes that's so powerful about suffering. He said, what is to give light must endure burning. Isn't that interesting? What is to give light must endure burning. Secret number four is highly happy couples hang out together. Studies show that the strongest predictor of friendships was not shared values, similar personalities, or a common cultural background, it was proximity. So the idea here is whoever you hang out with is who you're closest to. And so couples, happy couples spend time together. Happy couples do things together. They solve emotional distance by eliminating physical distance. So often when a couple comes to me and there's no huge problems, they just sort of report a blandness or we're just not close, I'll tell them to increase 
the amount of time they spend together by 20 or 30 percent. Just spend more time together and a lot of that will disappear. Highly happy couples aren't just spending time together because they're happy. A big part of the reason they're so happy is that they're spending time together. Now, I was um, thinking about marriage and thinking about what is so special about the marriage relationship or what are the ideal components of it. And I read uh, Song of Solomon 5.16 where it says, the, the, the bride is saying of the groom, he is my beloved and he is my friend. And I thought, oh, that captures it. In marriage, you have an erotic partner and you also have, you're also looking for your best friend, your closest friend. But there's one more component that the groom says in chapter four, uh, verse 10, he says, this is my sister. So this is a, a groom saying of his wife, you know, this is my sister. Well, yes, we look to our spouses for iron sharpening iron, don't we? There's a spiritual friendship. Uh, that's part of God's design for marriage is that we, that we knock the rough edges off of each other and we grow in oneness to glorify Christ. So, so there's really three components, ideal components in a biblical marriage. There's, there's the uh, brotherly, sisterly, sanctifying kind of part of it. There's the erotic part of it. And there's the deep abiding friendship. And then suddenly as I was working on this, I realized that's eros, phileo, and agape, isn't it? Those three components are to be there in the marriage relationship. Isn't that beautiful? He is my beloved. He is my friend. She is my sister. Okay, this one we're just going to read quickly. Um, highly happy couples give brutal honesty, quote unquote, the boot. Um, some people have this weird dedication to being ultra direct, not caring how it is perceived. They say, hey, that's just the way I am, take it or leave it. Well, yeah, that may be the way you are, but that's also why you're being left. Highly happy couples treat each other with intentional kindness, don't they? They joke and they challenge and they do go deep in confronting each other, but they try to never do it in ways their mate would perceive as disrespectful or hurtful. Struggling couples, on the other hand, don't feel emotionally safe. They don't feel like they can share their innermost feelings because they'll get attacked or something. So here are a bunch of scriptures Apologize for the writing being so small. Let your speech always be full of grace. A fool gives full vent to his anger. What is desirable in a man is his kindness. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, that it may give grace to those who hear. And then this great quote. Look at this. Be kind for every person you meet is fighting a great battle. Isn't that cool? Philo of Alexandra, Alexandria. Sixth, highly happy spouses uh, give their mate most of the credit for their relationship success. They live in regular conscious gratitude as a result. By contrast, the majority of so-so couples indicate that they are, they are the primary reason for a happy marriage. 
that they personally are the ones holding things together. Here's the scriptures. Consider others better than yourselves. Outdo one another in showing honor. Having been firmly established in your faith and overflowing with gratitude, her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her. Cicero wrote, gratitude is not only the greatest of virtues, but the parent of all others. Cultivate gratitude for your spouse. Tell them and others how grateful you are. Allow yourself to see their amazingness and the wonder of who they are. Isn't that beautiful? Highly happy couples really focus in on the amazingness and the positives of their spouse. And we can do that in all our relationships. And then the last one is look higher. Highly happy couples are not looking to their spouses as their primary source of happiness. Instead, they look higher to God. They worship together. They're plugged into a faith community. They share key values. They focus on serving their spouses rather than being served. They look to God for the power to be selfless. How many would say amen to that? Because it doesn't come naturally, and ultimately they trust God for the outcome. We've heard over the last few years that from uh, Gary Thomas's teaching that God designed marriage primarily to make us holy more than happy, or at least he poses the question. For the, from the Lord's standpoint, is it more about holiness than happiness? Well, Shanti Feldman asks a great question. How about door number three? Let's take both. Let's take both, holiness and happiness. I want to end with a, something I saw last week. Um, I've been picking on, I'm going to pick on the ferals today. I already mentioned Mike and circumspectly. But yesterday during the, or yesterday, last week during the worship service, I looked uh, behind me and saw Mike and Don raising their hands together, but holding hands. And they both had huge smiles on their faces as they worshiped God together, uh, holding hands together. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what we've been talking about? So, Father, we thank you. We bless you. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. May you uh, use this message, Lord, to strengthen our marriages, to encourage our singles, our young people especially, Lord. Um, we just thank you for this divine institution that you've given us that is so good and so right and so healthy. We just love you and honor you and commit this teaching to you in Jesus' name. Amen.